Good to see all you folks this morning. Uh, some of you I hadn't seen since last year. Boy, I love using that one. Once a year I get to use that. That's great, isn't it? You just never get tired of that one. <laughs> but anyways. Um, boy, I tell you, I got, I got my suit back from the dry cleaner. I don't know if it was the dry cleaning place or maybe the holidays, but I'm feeling a little biscuitous. Y'all know what biscuitous is? A uh, comedian said this one's biscuitous. You know how you get a, a roll of those canned biscuits? And you just barely pull on that little cardboard, you know, and it puffs out the dough inside. That's kind of how I'm feeling in this suit right now. So first couple rows, better watch out. The button's liable to fly here in a minute. <laughs> but anyways, uh, New Year's resolutions. Hey, you know, we, uh, I know what mine is. <laughs> Do you know what yours is? Um, and uh, listen, I've, I've heard pastors speak on, well, we Christians shouldn't have New Year's resolutions. Eh, you know, that's fine if he wants to hold to that opinion. I'm of the opinion that New Year's is just it's a great time to start, right? I mean, uh, with, with uh, every new day, God's mercy is made new. Uh, it's almost like in some sense we, we view it as a clean slate. You know, we look at last year and we, we recognize some of the things that maybe we failed in, some things we wanted to accomplish, and, and maybe we didn't get to accomplish them. And so I'm okay with New Year's resolutions. If some of you have set some, I want to encourage you this morning, and, and actually hopefully today's message will do that. It will encourage you. Uh, in fact, let me, let me give you some statistics. I found this article. Uh, it's, um, it was a research uh, poll that was conducted by a group an opinion uh, group out of Princeton, New Jersey. Listen to some of these statistics in regards to New Year's resolutions. 45% of Americans usually set New Year's resolutions. So that means half of you in this room right now probably have set some New Year's resolutions. Um, 17% infrequently set resolutions. And 38% absolutely never set resolutions. I'm not going to ask a show of hands of who in here has their New Year's resolutions set, or those of you that don't, but based upon these statistics, listen to what some of the research that's been found in regards to this. Only 8% of people are always successful in achieving their resolutions. You thought I was encouraging you this morning. I promise we'll get there, but uh, 8% of the people who start their resolutions, 19%, get this, 19% achieve their resolutions every other year. So uh, maybe this is an off year for you. That's all right. Pick it up next year. You may have a better chance. Um, 49% have infrequent success. 24%, that's one in four people. One in four people never succeed and have failed on every resolution every year. <laughs> oh, this sermon's getting better, isn't it? Uh, that means that three out of four people almost never succeed. Um, of those who do set resolutions, now listen to these stats. Now you're going to be, if some of you math people are going to go, well that's, that doesn't add up to 100%. Uh, some of these people that were polled in this survey, uh, they have set multiple resolutions, so that's why these won't exactly add up to 100%. But listen to this. 34% set resolutions related to money. 34% set resolutions related to money. 38% set resolutions related to weight. 47% set resolutions related to self-improvement or education. 31% set resolutions related 
to relationships. Also, it appears that the younger you are, the more likely you are to achieve your resolution. So you young folks, woohoo! One for you here. 39% of those in their 20s, 39% of those in their 20s achieve their resolutions every year or every other year. Less than 15% of those over 50 achieve their resolutions every year or every other year. So... um, uh, and, and here's another statistic. The less happy you are, okay, the less happy you are, the more likely you are to set New Year's resolutions. Hmm. A little insight, huh? This is especially true for those who set money-related resolutions. Get this, 41% are not happy who set money-related. Re- and again, this is just a poll. This is a little survey that was done. Uh, 34% are moderately happy, and 25% are happy. Okay, here's the punchline. There is no correlation between happiness and resolution setting or success. There's no correlation between... In other words, you're not going to be any happier whether you set it or you achieve it. Um, Statistics have shown people who achieve the resolutions every year are no happier than those who do not set resolutions or who are unsuccessful in achieving them. Well, based upon those stats, um, and again, those are just just some numbers in, in, in my opinion, but here's the point. Setting resolutions, and, and that's good if we have. Listen, I, I've got some set myself, all right? Um, and we need some motivation. And hopefully, you know, you will set that course, charter that course, and finish well. But what we're going to talk about in the sermon this morning is the recipe you are going to need for success. Not just in your resolution setting, but in life. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. That survey talked about people weren't any happier. Well, we're going to give you God's truth on how your life can be happy. Now, happy is dependent upon circumstances, right? As Christians, I don't think we need to strive necessarily for happiness, though that can be a part of our life. Joy is what we desire. You see, the difference is joy is an internal abode. My circumstances can be falling apart in my life, but I can still have joy. I can still have peace. I may not be happy about my circumstances. Some of you this morning may not be very happy, but hopefully you have joy. But the Scriptures do talk about a happy person. And I think it it goes much deeper than that, and we'll see because... uh, Well, let's just take a look at the text this morning. Everybody look in Psalm Chapter 1, and let's read the the text. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, or happy. Happy is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and in His law He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever He does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Father, I pray this morning that you would anoint me as your servant. Lord, I pray that I would just share your truth with this body of believers. Lord, we do need the encouragement to live this Christian life. We do want to finish well. And so, Father God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit of God, you would deal with us this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, make the resolutions that need to be made before you, before the throne of grace. And Lord, that's, that's the most important thing that we need to do. May our hearts and minds be clear as we leave here this morning. Lord, that we have met with you, that we've heard from you, and that our lives would be forever changed. So Father, work in our hearts and work in, in this sermon even now. We'll give you the glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice, it starts off here in, in verse 1, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. This word blessed translates the Hebrew word esher. It's the idea of happiness or contentment. Esher comes from a Hebrew word called ashar. And, and the word ashar, the root means to be straight or to be right. Blessed is the man speaks of the happiness, the blessedness, the contentment in the life of the man or woman who is right or straight with God. The righteous man will be a blessed man, a happy man. Blessed means supremely happy or fulfilled. In fact, in Hebrew, the word actually is a plural, which denotes either a multiplicity or blessings or an, inter, or an intensification of them according to Boyce in his research. Blessed means supremely happy or fulfilled. Are you blessed this morning? Are you fulfilled? Are you content? Well, this raises another question. How is this man blessed? How can you be blessed? Now, obviously, you can turn on TV and get a number of uh, explanations on how you can be blessed. That's not what I'm talking about. And even with today's title, uh, you may misunderstand the direction of this sermon. But let me say, the name of this title, I'm titling this sermon, Which Road Are You On? Which Road Are You On? The Passage to Prosperity or Path to Perish? Passage to Prosperity or Path to Perish? You know, I noticed the, the bulletins this morning, and I promised Carolyn and I did not conspire to come up with this. This is what we call Holy Spirit-led. This is great. Notice your bulletin. Uh, it's from, from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge Him, and what? He shall direct thy paths. Notice the little path roads here. I thought that was great. Which path? Which path are you going to travel? We're going to talk about those two paths this morning. 
If you're taking notes, a couple of things you may want, want to make mention of here in this text um, in regards to those two paths. One path is for the righteous. The other path is for the reprobate. Those are your two main headings. Righteous and reprobate. So what about the righteous? How is he blessed? Notice verse 1. By what he does not do. By what he does not do. He doesn't, he doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, or he doesn't sit with the ungodly. Walk, stand, or sit. Notice, uh, he doesn't walk after the ungodly, but follows godliness. Turn with me to uh, Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know, again, a lot of you, your resolutions are finances, exercise. Well, let's encourage you with the the word of truth on how you can be a blessed man, how you can be happy, how you can be content in this situation. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Sounds like prosperity to me. Proper prosperity. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food, clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, the Scriptures teach us that When it comes to bodily exercise, well, look at, look at this passage, 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. Just flip right over. I should have held my spot. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, says this. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. You see, the blessed man, he doesn't walk in the way of the ungodly. You see, the ungodly, in their New Year's resolutions, they perhaps, they want more. Maybe at the heart there's an attitude of greed. They're not content. They're not satisfied. And, and, and listen, we live in a culture that is enamored by, by the body, the physicalness. 
And if you're not a certain size, sub-zero, then you're somehow just, you know, you're out of vogue. But yet, did you hear what the, the blessed man, the happy man, is to flee these things? You know, no, that's the idea of repentance. Too, too often times today, the gospel is preached and it's watered down. It's not even the gospel of the Scriptures. You see, the Scriptures call us to not only turn from this wicked world and its ways and its philosophies. That's repentance. We're to turn our back on that. And we're to flee. Guess what? I'm pursuing things this way. If I turn this way, God doesn't expect me to just stand here and spin my wheels. No, He gave us instructions to pursue something. Start after a new goal. Start after a new way of life. And what did it say? Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Let's go after that finish line. Let's pursue that. Let's get as active in the things of God as we sometimes get active in the things of the world. Imagine. Imagine if this church, if we got this type of zeal in our heart to pursue after the things of God, that we, uh, and we just went through a list of them, if we began to pursue after those things as much as we pursue after Growth in our business, tightening those abs. You know, by the way, I, I, I know y'all are looking up here and saying, hey, he's been working out. No, I haven't, I promise. Working out the table, a little table muscle. Yeah, I know, it, it, it's, 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 it's flexing this morning. Sorry about that. But look, gang, we got to stop pursuing after that. We need to repent, we need to recognize, Lord. Help me. And I know some of you here this morning, that is your New Year's resolution. You want to be closer to the Lord. You want to draw closer to God in 2011. I want to encourage you with with what God says. Look, how is He blessed? He doesn't walk after the ungodly, but follows or pursues godliness. That's the direction of the, the righteous. Notice what else? He doesn't stand. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners, but seeks the presence of the Lord. Look over in, in Psalm 16, 11. Psalm 16, 11 tells us this. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. I know some of you are still turning there. Circle that passage. Wow, you will show me the path of life. God doesn't want to hide that road. He's not hidden His way in which we can get closer to Him. Some of us, we, we oh Lord, I just desire, I want to be closer to You, but yet we're doing nothing. We're not putting, we're not putting uh, our faith into practice. That's like me watching the P90X commercial while I'm eating a bag of potato chips. It's not doing me any good, Right? You guys know what I'm talking about out there this morning. That's all right. Look, we got to get up off of our blessed assurance and get on to it. Show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. You want to have fullness of joy? You want to be content in your life? You want to be happy? You want to be blessed? Guess where it's at? In the presence of the Lord. Amen? That's where we should desire to be, right? Well, 
The blessed man doesn't walk. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. You know, I think of personal devotion. And I, I want to encourage the church. You know, we, we were here as a small group of us and we prayed in the new year. And I know many of you were praying at your house and grateful to the Lord for that. But we want to make at the top of our pursuit as followers of Christ to draw closer to the Lord. Lord, help us in that time of intimacy. You know, I heard a statistic this morning on a sermon that one, I think it was one out of six people who profess to be Christians never read their Bible during the week. Not even once. They don't pick their Bible up not once during the week. It's like one out of six do, I guess. was Maybe that was the statistic. But um, I, I don't know. That ought to not be so, right? And, and look, if, if God's talking to you right now, don't worry. Nobody else knows except for maybe your family or your spouse. Put that at the top of your to-do list. I'll talk a little bit more on that in just a second. Well, notice what else the blessed man doesn't do. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. You know, it amazes me. We sit in the seat of the scornful. Let me, let me tell you how we do that. I sit down. I turn on my little TV. Oh, honey, there's a special on tonight on, uh, on uh, Dateline NBC on uh, Jesus. They found some extra books. And we listen to these scoffers tell us about all this evidence that's supposedly been found that disclaims the Scriptures, that discredits the Scriptures. You know what we really do, though, parents? We ship our kids off and have them sit down in those classrooms while that professor with all those letters out in front of his names indoctrinates them that that book is not true. And he throws stuff at them and fills their mind, which begins to get into their heart. Well, this guy must know more than my parents. Look, I worked with youth for ten years. You can keep your head in the sand all you want, parents, and you can justify because you went to a university. But I can tell you, the university you went to is not the university your kids are going off to today. And we're putting them into places where that's Satan's goal. He is going to deprogram them. He's going to try and pluck out those seeds of faith to get them to doubt. And there's no place oftentimes for them to get the real answers to the disputes, the questions that the skeptic is raising. It's okay for those questions to be raised. I love for those questions to be raised. Because what it should do is, as followers of Christ, it should cause us to dig in deep to find the answers. And that will strengthen our faith. But oftentimes we just ship the kids off. We don't actually go there and find out what organizations are there that, that stand for Christ and try to connect them into those groups so that they have a small accountability group so that they can be uh, growing in their faith. It, it, look, listen, I'm, if you want to ship your kid off to a university, secular university, I, I, 
that's not my, my beef, my battle. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying necessarily. But if that's your choice, if you feel that's where God is calling you, and that's the first place you better check, is that where God's calling you. Because I've found too often times in dealing with parents and teenagers on this, they have bought into the philosophy of the world. Why do you want to go to Duke? Sorry. Oh, Harris, where you at? Sorry. I'll even pick on myself. Why do you want to go to Chapel Hill? And without fails, well, I'm thinking about going into this field. Okay? Well, I, 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 I want to get a good education and uh, so I can get a good job. Okay. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Is there anything wrong with that? No. But without fail, what I never hear oftentimes when I have this discussion with parents is this. We've prayed about it. And we really feel strongly led that this is where God wants our child to go. Or the child say, I've prayed about it and I really feel led that this is where God wants me. In fact, that's very rarely even thought of in the Christian home to to pray about where to go to school. Yeah, sometimes they do, but it's usually after the fact. Well, they can get a scholarship here, or they can play sports here, or they can do this there. You better be careful. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Okay, the Scriptures tell me, God's truth tells me that if if He's at the forefront of that pursuit, then this stuff will work out. Because who's going to open the door anyway after school for that potential job? You say, oh, well, if i got a good degree, it's going to help open that door. Well, I can tell you a good number of people have gone to those schools that aren't doing anything they went into that in their field of study. And their degree, because it's from a prominent school, doesn't necessarily open the door when they're up against somebody else who has experience or know someone within the company. Right? This is just reality. We're taking a providential rabbit trail, but I think it's, it's in order. Because here's my concern. Where is God in our pursuit? Where is God in this? Can you imagine? I'm going to camp out here. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute, okay? I know I've already been on it, but... Can you imagine if the body of believers were endorsing Christ-centered schools? Well, yeah, you got your education. You got training in the field you want to pursue. But first and foremost, you got trained in the Scriptures. You had opportunity to pray with your professors or, or pray with other students. You didn't feel the added pressure of of drinking and drugs and sex and all those things that I can guarantee you will pressure you. And it will pressure you even at a Bible college. Parents, young people. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who does not walk with the ungodly. He doesn't, he doesn't stand. He doesn't sit. 
He doesn't stand in the path of sinners and He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But we're choosing. We're choosing to sit up under that. God's Word says that we shouldn't sit in the seat of the scornful, but we should rest in the confidence of Christ. Turn with me over to Acts. Acts 28. By the way, if you don't want to do all the flipping uh, uh, through the Scriptures, just jot down the passage, go home and look at it later. Uh, I, I've kind of, you know, i got a leg up here. I, I was able to put yellow tabs in so I can get there quick. <laughs> Actually, that's what my secretary does, my wife. So, not, not this secretary, but my wife. Um, look in Acts, and let's look in, in verse, uh, in chapter 28, and listen to these passages in verse 16 of chapter 28. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. He's under house arrest. Paul's under house arrest. Check this out. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men, brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect. We know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning till evening, And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken. And some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes. And hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts. And turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you. That the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they... We'll hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. 
Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. No one forbidding him. You see, the blessed man doesn't walk after the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But he rests in the confidence of Christ. He's not afraid to stand for what he believes. He's not ashamed to share the good news of Jesus Christ. These are things the blessed man does not do. But notice what the blessed man does. This is what he does do. Verse 2. Notice. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. You know, on Wednesdays we've been studying The Blazing Sinner by John Piper. And one of the things that that entails is this philosophy. Listen, God is the blazing sun at the center of reality. God is the blazing sun at the center of reality. Everything revolves around Him. And as the most valuable and glorious person who exists, God is loving, not conceited. When He calls us to worship Him, He's not being conceited. He's being loving. Because if He's going to give you the best, He has to give you Himself. His pursuit of glory and our pursuit of joy are not at odds. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Do you hear what Piper's saying in that? And by the way, if you haven't sat in on Wednesday night study, you are missing out. It's been a great blessing, great encouragement. Look, I don't agree with Piper on everything. In fact, there's a lot of things that that I'm sure, you know, I just pass on over. It's the old saying, I think Pastor Hightower made the comment of you chew the corn and and don't eat the cob. And that's the case a lot of times with, with teachers. But that's all right. I can tell you there's some sweet corn on that cob right now. And uh, Lynn knows I like corn, don't I, Lynn? Yeah, because most of my jokes are that way anyway. That's why we're in good company. <laughs> but, but Piper makes that comment. Look, God's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Are you satisfied this morning? Are you content in God? Is that where you're finding your motivation? Is that where your happiness is? Is that at the forefront of your focus? Is that the purpose of your life? What makes you happy? Let me ask you that question. What makes you happy? Think about it for a second. What really? What what gets you going? What makes you happy? What gets you excited? If a person delights in something, you don't have to beg them to do it or to like it. Agreed? If a person delights in something, you don't have to beg them to do it or to like it. They will do it all by themselves. 
You can measure your delight for the Word of God by how much you hunger for it. David Gusick said that. David's right on. Gang, why is it? Why is it your pastor has to beg you to gather together when we come together? I can assure you if, if there was something that you love, and you know your passions, you know what, man, when you hear this is happening, you're there. Let's just be real for a minute. When it's something you delight in, you are so there. That excites me. Count me in. And we justify and spiritualize when we're not. Right? I mean, come on, we're just being real. But I don't go to prayer meeting. I I can pray. I pray at the house. I pray at the house. (laughs) I mean, you know, I know that's not how we display it, but in a sense, maybe that is the attitude in our heart. The question I'm asking this morning is this. Have we grown dull of hearing? Are we seeing, but not seeing? Are we hearing, but not hearing? The blessed man delights. He delights in the law of the Lord. That law of the Lord phrase, that's that's a reference to the Word of God. He delights in the Word of God. If you do not delight in the, in the Word of God, maybe we need some heart check. Maybe we got a, a bad, bad valve. You know, maybe we need a little, little heart operation here. I know a great physician. I'll refer you to him. Lord, work in our hearts. Do the surgery that's needed. Because I don't know about you, I want to be a blessed man. I want to be a man who who doesn't walk and doesn't stand and doesn't sit when it comes to the ungodly and the sinners and the scornful. But I do want to delight in the law of the Lord. The righteous man only has God's Word on his mind two times a day. The righteous man only has God's Word on his mind two times a day. Day and night. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know who came up with that, but boy, that's good stuff. That about covers it all, doesn't it? You know, I know a lot of you for your New Year's resolution, maybe you've decided to read through the Bible in a year. And that's good. I want to encourage you to do that. That's great. That's great. But let me, as your pastor, tell you something even better. I would rather you chew on one verse and gain understanding and apply it than a year of every passage with no change. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not about how many times I read through the Bible in my life, though I think that is a great, that is a great thing to do. And there's no doubt if you're doing that, you can't continue in a life of sin and look into the mirror of God's Word unless you're just totally blind. But the point I'm trying to make is this. I would rather you absorb 
and, and chew on something, even if you've got to camp out there for a while and you only get one passage of Scripture digested in the whole year, I'd rather you spend every day chewing on it and get understanding and apply it. The blessed man delights. He's hungry for the things of God. Well, how's the righteous, uh, how the righteous man is blessed continues on in verse 3. Notice in, in Psalm 1, verse 3, he says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he does, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. So, what, is the, what does the righteous man do? We know what he doesn't do. Now we know what he does do. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Uh, d- don't turn here. Just li- You can, can if you want to, but I'm going to move fast through this portion. Uh, listen to what's said over in Jeremiah. This is over in, uh, in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. He says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Let me back it up just a little bit, give you a little context of what's going on here. Uh, Notice, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. Big comparison to what's been described in Psalm 1, huh? Uh, He shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. That's the man who puts his trust in man. Are you putting your trust in man? Are you motivated by willpower? You can do this. You don't need nobody to help you. Are you trusting in your own abilities? But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Hmm. You know, I'll never forget, I taught this lesson uh, to a group of young people and we had hiked down to a river and we found a tree next to the river and it was just, I mean, it was this beautiful picture of, of, of Psalm 1 and the roots, I mean, huge roots, you could see them up on the bank and just how they'd grown through and the tree was huge in comparison to the other trees and plush. And we sat down there and we studied this psalm. Christian, that's the way our life should look. If you'll draw up near the source, the water of life, if you'll, if you'll absorb and soak in the truth of God's Word, I can tell you, your life will begin to flourish. You've got to anchor down into the truth of God's Word. Now hear what I'm saying and don't read into what, what I'm not saying. You're going to face adversity. If you choose to live godly, you better believe it. But God promises, when all is said and done, your life will be one that counted for prosperity. Those roots 
will grow strong. Those branches of your life, the fruit won't cease. Notice it says that bringeth forth fruit in a season. John 15 talks about this. Over in, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is, is talking about uh, abiding in, in God. Notice, I'm going to read these verses 1 through 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Are you abiding? Are you drawing close to the source of living water? He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. His leaf also shall not wither. Isaiah 61.3 gives us a picture of this. And, and, and I may comment in my, in my uh, scriptures here at one time when I studied this passage. This is the purpose of a Christian. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a messianic uh, uh, a prophecy. It, it, it speaks of who Christ is. Absolutely. But as followers of Christ, this should personify our life as well. Notice, the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me. This is Isaiah 61, verse 1 and following. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. You see, church, Christian, you're like a tree. And the Lord has planted you. And He's planted you for His glory. And if you'll abide in Him as He abides in you, if you'll purpose in your heart this new year to not go the way of the ungodly, to not stand with the sinner, to not not sit in the seat of the scornful, but purpose in your heart to turn and pursue after righteousness, to draw close to the living water, and allow God to, to saturate your soul the soil of your soul, you'll begin to bud with leaves and eventually bring forth fruit. Notice the bringing forth of His fruit is in His season. I'll never forget when, when I first... I actually... 
when I was contemplating that I even had to contemplate when I was going to ask Allison to marry me. Um, it didn't take much contemplation, but I wanted to go hike the uh, Appalachian Trail. I thought, I'm just going to get away, clear my head, seek the Lord, and uh, I'm going to go hike for, for you know, two to three weeks and just you know, camp out and just kind of walk the trail, hike the trail. And of course, my girlfriend at the time, Allison, pleaded and begged. She did not want me doing that by myself because I'd never done anything like that and it was dangerous. And so finally I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll ask another student to go. It was over a, a, a break. And, and um, so I asked a guy, you know, hey, man, would you like to go? He, of course, yeah, he'd love to. So we both went. Praise the Lord, I listened to my wife. I still listen to my wife <laughs> because this is a very important reason. I ended up actually injuring my back and couldn't, I mean, literally, it was all I could do to stand. And um, anyway, that's another sermon and story all in and of itself. But we finally made it to a camp after he uh, basically had to drag me and my backpack and his own gear to, to a place down a, a hill in a gully. And there were some other campers there. And so we kind of set up shop with them. And it ended up being good. They were believers and we had Bible study. So it was a God thing in the end. But we, met, we purposed to memorize Psalm 1. And I remember just chewing on this. And I know it's not necessarily the meaning in the text. But there is a principle here when it talks about bringing forth fruit in His season. Did you know that in your life there is a time, there is a purpose where when you are doing as the blessed man should do and you're drawing close to God and you're soaking in the truth of God's Word and you're seeking to live in a, in a way that honors the Lord and glorifies God, that there will be a season in your life that will bear much fruit. That's what this passage says. But you know, I thought, I thought wow, in his, in his season. And I know it's not referencing, uh, it's a little H there if you're looking in your text. It's not a big H. But, but you know what? Ultimately, isn't it God who's going to do it through us anyway? Isn't it Him to God be the glory? And so in His time, in His season, He'll bring it forth. Well... That's something that, that really stuck with me. You know, I, I don't know what God has in store for Community Baptist Church in 2011. But I do know this. If we'll put this message into practice on day one of this new year, Sunday, first Sunday of the new year, there's no doubt this church in its season will bear fruit. I hope you'll consider this challenge. Notice as we continue on, and we'll rush through these. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I'm reminded in 3 John, again, no need to turn now, read. Uh, 3 John speaks of, um, in verses 1 through 4, uh, when he's referencing to the beloved Gaius, He says, I rejoice greatly, verse 3. Actually, let me back it up. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Over in verse 11, he says this, 
Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Whatsoever he does shall prosper. You know, John is telling those people when he wrote there in 3 John, he says, hey, it excites me, it delights me when I hear my children are walking in truth. Community Baptist Church, your pastor is excited. Gives me a little kick in my step when I hear people in the community boast on you, brag on you, because they see your good works, because ultimately what they're doing is glorifying God in heaven. Keep walking in truth. That's what the blessed man does. The reprobate is not so. Verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 1. The reprobate is not so. He, verse 4, he's like chaff. You know, chaff, you know what chaff is? It's, it's that light shell, the little light thin shell around a kernel of grain. And it needs to be stripped away before the kernel of grain can be ground into flour. And in fact, chaff was light enough that it could be separated from the grain by throwing a scoopful into the air. And the wind would catch the light little shell. You've had like little peanuts before. You know what I'm talking about? The little kind that kind of always ends up in the, in the, in the container because nobody wants those. You know, with the little red. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, it's even thinner than that. And it catches and it would blow away uh, in the wind, letting the wind drive away the chaff. This is how unstable, how lacking in substance the ungodly are. The harvest, when it would come time for the harvest of the grain, and that little shell uh, was separated, it was because it was of no value. It was worthless. Isaiah 5.24 talks about that. Isaiah 5.24 says this, in fact, let, let, me, let me just kind of run through this passage. Um, in, in Isaiah 5, he says, Therefore, as the, fire, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness. Now think about the tree of life. Think about the righteous man that was just described in Psalm 1. Now listen to the reprobate as he's described. There, there as the fire, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now again, I know the context of Isaiah, you do too. But there's truths here that describe the ungodly. It also describes, and this is very important for us to recognize, because in the context of Isaiah, he's dealing with his people. Now, church, I know that, there, that you know, we, we can't lose our salvation. It's securing Christ. It's not about what you've done, but what He has done for you. But I also recognize some great truths in Scripture that we as professing believers need to be warned about. You see, Israel, when, when they were judged, as described in that Isaiah 5 passage, and that's who it was actually dealing with, because they had turned their back on God as a nation, and it brought judgment. But you know what? We're reminded in, in Scripture, in Matthew, think about this, Matthew five thirteen. listen to this passage. It says, you are the salt of the earth. Believer, you're the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt does, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Christian, if we're not careful, we can lose our effect. We can become saltless. We can become almost like chaff in the sense that we would be worthless. No longer fit for use. First Peter 4.17 warns us that the time has come when judgment must begin at the house of God. Listen to these stats. Worship has become a form of godliness. Worship has become a form of godliness. A lot of people come to church and they have done their godly deed. But their heart is far from Him. Who does that sound like? Recent church member survey. Listen to this recent church uh, member survey of of a larger church Listen to these stats. See if this resonates. 10% on the roster, they're members of this church. 10% never attend church, but they're on the roster. 40% never give to any cause. 50% of this church, and I believe these are pretty accurate for most churches, 50% never go to Sunday school. 60% never go to Sunday night services. 70% never give to missions. 75% never engage in any church activity. 80% Never attend prayer meetings. 90% never have family worship. And 95% of Christians in this body of believers that were surveyed, 95% never win a soul to Christ. Time has come when judgment must begin at the house of God. And Scripture reminds me, it's better for us to look at our our own life, examine ourselves to see where we're at. And church, that's my prayer for us this year. Lord, help me shine shine the light into my life in the areas where where I, I have gone astray, where I need to get right. Help me to make the steps that I need to make that that honor and glorify you. No, does it make you any better of a Christian just because you go every time the doors are open at the church? No. Boy, there should be some type of hunger in our heart to gather, shouldn't there? Those statistics. The shoe fits, wear it. If it don't, don't force it. Notice verse 5 of Psalm 1. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. By the way, note this. I made these little notes here in the text. Verse 4, 5, and 
uh, 4 and 5 and 6. Because I know initially the blessed man, the righteous man, it says he walks, underline, stand, underline, sit, underline. Notice now the reprobate, verse 4. Walks, that's the idea, drives away, the chaff drives away. That's the direction it goes, it's like walking. So I put walks there. And then notice how the ungodly, the reprobate also, he does not stand in the judgment. I underline stand right there. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What are you doing right now? You're sitting in the congregation of the righteous. Made a little note there. Sit. This is what, look, the reprobate, he, he, he doesn't, he's not going to stand. He's not going to be approved by God's judgment. There will be no weight. You talk about being blown away? The reprobate will not stand in the day of judgment. They will be found lacking. And notice the second part of that. The sinners not found with the saints. This is present and future. It should be anyway. Now, don't get me wrong. The natural man, alright? Now think about it. We, we, we're gonna have churches all across America have, have natural men. They have goats sitting in with the sheep. Scripture said that's the way it'll be till harvest time, right? Wheats and tares will grow together. The, the natural man does not discern the things of the Spirit. And my guess is that same person feels like they don't belong sometimes in a, in a church where truth is being preached. Why would they? If, if you know, this is spiritually discerned, why don't I want to go to church? I don't get anything out of it. It don't do anything for me. The natural man, the reprobate... Um, they seem to not, not belong, currently speaking. They lack understanding. You know, church by definition cannot have unbelievers. Do I want unbelievers here? Sure I do. Because the truth is going to be proclaimed. But the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, by definition, cannot have an unbeliever in it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the body of Christ, universally speaking, is made up of believers. So by definition, the church cannot have unbelievers in it. Now, will we have unbelievers in our midst? Absolutely. Do we want unbelievers to come and, and, and come to the services? Absolutely. Because hopefully the Word of God will penetrate their heart. They'll be converted. They'll become a believer. But the church is designed in its gathering for the saints. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's your purpose, my purpose, to go outside of this, these walls to reach the unbeliever, to win the unbeliever, to share the gospel with the unbeliever. And as the Holy Spirit of God moves upon their life and, and convicts them of their sin and draws them to repentance, when they are repentant and saved, then, guess what? You're a member of the church. Come on into the holy huddle. Let's get some plays. Ready? Break. Now we're going to go implement the play. You see, churches have it upside down now. They're, they're marketing so they can get all the unbelievers here. And guess what? It's happening. Unbelievers are getting on the roster. And unbelievers are now making the decisions on how to do church. John MacArthur said it best. He said that, and you've heard me quote this before. Jesus is no longer head of the church. 
the unregenerate sinner is. What? Yeah, what he's saying is this. We're taking marching orders, not from the Word of God, the truth of God. We're taking marching orders by some marketing decision. By some business-minded men who don't even know Christ. They're the ones feeding and funding a lot of the movements going on under Christianity. Now, does that say that, that, that we shouldn't have... No, no, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We want godly businessmen. We want godly leadership. Okay? That's the point. Uh, all right. So, the, the reprobate is like chaff. He's not approved. Uh, he, he's not going to, to uh, walk um, in the direction of life that he should. He's not going to, to stand in the judgment of God. He's not going to sit with the saints. And um, in closing, verse 6, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous leads to life. It leads to eternal life. The way of the godly shall perish. Matthew reminds us that narrow is the gate that leads to life. We know broad's the way that leads to destruction. Which road are you on? Are you on the passage to prosperity? Or are you on the path to perish? Application. Church, let this be our resolution. God, by Your grace, help me to refocus. Help me to have a God-centered life, not a self-centered life. Our vision in 2011 is real simple. You know, I was going to do this whole sermon of visionary, put up here in PowerPoint, tell you this is where we feel like the Lord's leading us, and this is where we want to go, and we want to see this happen. But you know what? The more I, I prayed, the more I thought about it, and the more I went through the Scriptures, this is our vision. Church, your visionary step that God has laid upon my heart as your pastor, as your shepherd, to lead the sheep. This is our visionary step for 2011. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Because you know what's going to happen? If you'll fall in love with God all over again, if He'll become the biggest thing in your universe, if He'll become the one thing that wakes you in the morning and motivates you through the day, if you'll begin to delight in the Word of God, in the people of God, in doing the will of God. These visionary steps will come into play because our leaf will go green and we'll begin to bud fruit 
and will bear much fruit if we stay close to the river of water. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Lord, blessed is the man. We want to be blessed men and women, Lord. We want to... We want to have your favor upon us. We want to know that everything we do prospers. Not for self-glorification, but Lord, for your glory. Father, you know the way of the righteous. And Lord, you've set before us the path that we should follow. You've laid out that passageway. And it's your word that directs our steps. Lord, I pray you kindle within us a zeal and a desire for you. Lord, let us get excited about you. Help us to fall in love with you again, Lord. Help us to return to our first love. Help us to to meditate day and night on your truths, to lay aside the sins that so easily beset us. Let us turn our back on the pleasures of this world and the temporal fulfillments to pursue after, to chase after, to run after your righteousness and godliness, faith and love and patience and, Lord, all of the things that you've reminded us of in your truth. These are the things we need to pursue. Lord, give us that focus. Lord, I pray that even as we implement New Year's resolutions, that we not lose sight that at the forefront should be our relationship with you. Lord, help us. Help us to be your people. We'll thank you and we'll praise you.